listening to First Church Charlotte. You know, church is great for vertical, but we can worship the Lord together and never get to know each other. Um, We need another format for those horizontal connections. And uh, as hosts of people who take a chance and worship with us, we wanted to create a format where uh, we connect one with another. And so that First Steps class is really uh, introduction to the church, uh, to the staff, gives you some of our whys, some of our church philosophy, so to speak, how we do things. Um, it's not, there is some, we do answer some doctrinal issues, but it's not primarily a doctrinal class. It's, it's more about uh, getting to know one another. And today's lesson three, which is uh, understanding a spirit-filled church. What does that mean? Uh, and what does it mean for you? So if you have any questions about what a spirit-filled church means, or what do we talk about, or what we're talking about the Holy Spirit, or even if someone refers to the Holy Ghost, what are we talking about? Any questions? Uh, today's a great day to slip in and have some of those questions answered. Um, I had one other item of, yeah, oh, we do have two baptisms today. We're excited about that. Uh, even through this 2020, we've been baptizing a, a lot of people. We're excited about that and uh, looking to see how the Lord will bless and prosper uh, all of us together. One other thing, um, I had uh, I've had a cold this week. Um, now, what that means is I coughed and immediately had to find out if it was COVID. And so um, I, I didn't. I knew I had a cold by Monday, and I went to. Uh, I immediately called my doctor and went to the doctor's office and was tested. And I want you all to know that I am 100% COVID free. Thankful for that. But this is why I'm telling you. Here it is, right here. Um, I may cough in the middle of my message because my throat is still clearing. It is not a COVID kiss, I promise you. It's just a cough. I know some of you on the front row are rethinking your seating choices now, uh, but I will probably speak a little softer than I normally would um, for that very reason. Um, But I wanted to tell you, because we're all hypersensitive right now, and not only that, we want to take care of one another. We are our brother's keeper. And that's, that's one of the reasons why um, we as a church, we, we strive to do it. Um, there's all kind of debates about what and who and when and why, but we don't do that. We just do our best to try to take care of one another. Um, and so I am going to preach from this subject here today. And I, full confession, I wasn't planning on preaching today because I was pretty uncomfortable this week and I wasn't planning on it. And so I... I didn't study because I felt terrible. And I, well, that's not true. I always study because it's my personality, but I, I wasn't preparing a message. And uh, so I started texting and calling uh, other uh, ministers and pastors. I was sure I would have somebody here to preach this Sunday. And I just was sure. And as the week went on, they all canceled one right after another. They couldn't do it, couldn't do it. And come the end of the week, and I, I had nothing to preach. Can you all imagine me with nothing to preach? It's like, so what I decided to do, um, well, this is why you don't have notes to download today on the website, is I was just going to share with you the thoughts and the study that I had been doing uh, through the week, um, really not preparing a sermon, just the what the I felt like the Lord was doing in my life. And so my title today is simply this, of worship and spiritual desire, of worship and spiritual desire. Uh, will you help me preach a little bit here today? Let's practice a big amen. That's what I'm talking about. You came to the right church. All right, so... Here we go. I'm going to refer to two stories in the scripture. Uh, The first of them is David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and the lessons that were learned in that process. And I'm also going to tell the story of Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman by uh, Jacob's well in Samaria, told to us in John chapter number four. Both of these stories are revealing something about the manner in which we as 
created beings, we as limited, finite humans, uh, we as mortals who know in part and see in part, we who feel eternity, but we haven't the ability to define it, to describe it, to embrace it on a spiritual level. We have a sense of the divine because we can feel the fingerprints of God in our very makeup and structure. But that said, we are very much bounded. We're bounded by our limits of power. We're bounded by the limits of control. And we are finally bounded by the decades that pile up faster than we would like them and then surprise us all at the end as though, really, that happened? And did it, (laughs) really, was it that short? We are finite and limited, and yet we have the sense within us of the eternal. We go to the scripture because there is no book that so fits the instruction of divinity. There's no book that so beautifully encapsulates uh, the story of God. There's nothing to compare to the word of the Lord. And so we go to the word of the Lord and there we begin to read the stories of people who oddly enough are a lot like us. They knew in part and they saw in part. They were bounded with limited knowledge, with imperfect abilities. They were bounded on all sides by a sense of their own smallness, and yet within their hearts they had a sense of the divine, and they turned their hearts toward God. They did not have the benefit of 66 books of spiritual instruction. Uh, They did not have the benefit of knowledge of how God has made covenants with humanity and how God has opened himself to people and sought to know imperfect beings through grace and mercy. They didn't have all of that, but even so, they had something within them that turned their heart toward God. Job had no scripture, and yet he zealously pursued God. Uh, Abraham had no scripture. Abraham didn't even have a name for God. He had no title for God. He never mentions a name for God or is given a name for God until he meets Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is the priest of the Most High God. And having been introduced to a way, introduced to a truth, introduced to God as being an entity, not just idea and calling, he emerges from that time with Melchizedek and says, I have made a covenant with the Most High God. But even with his lack of Bible, even without his understanding of Scripture, even all the limits, he has this something, this, this intangible something that is pursuing God, pursuing relationship. I hope all of us here today have that. Can I have a big amen? <coughs> I hope we have something within us that is turning our hearts toward God. If our life only consists of, you know, our paychecks and our weekends, I promise you, it's going to be an, an inch deep. And the years are going to mock us because we're going to arrive at some point of experience and realize that we missed the more beautiful half of life. I hope there's something in you that's inclining your heart toward God. Wherever you're watching this at today, I hope there's something within you that it's not satisfied just to show up for a religious occasion, but even in the ordinariness of your life, you want to know him. You want to know him better. You want to have a relationship with God. You're not sure what that means. Let me tell you a secret. None of us are exactly sure what that means because it's a journey. It is a pursuing. It is a hunger. It is a thirst. It is an ask, a seek, a knock, but you've got to do it. You've got to pursue. You've got to hunger. You've got to search the scriptures. You've got to make space in your life. You've got to bow your knee. You've got to lift your hands. You you need to confess your sins, and you need to open your heart. If we miss this, religion will seem ultimately empty. If we miss the intangible, indescriptable, 
difficult to explain pursuit of godliness as relationship, as worship ideal. If we miss this, uh, then we will be as those of whom the Bible said they, they had a form of godliness. That's not a bad thing. We all have forms. We all have rituals. We all have styles. They had that, but they did not have the next more important, the power that comes from manif- the manifestation of God in your life. The power is not the form. The power is the presence and the manifestation of God. Can I have a big amen? First story. So there is Jesus uh, at the well. Um, he has left one part of the country, not so much because he was done there, uh, but because the Pharisees had begun to compare him with John the Baptist. If you want to get Jesus to leave your presence, turn religion into competition. And Jesus is heading to the next town. You turn a church into a compass status, uh, a comp- competitive status competition where we're looking around and judging and finding short. I promise you, Jesus is heading to the next town, even if it's Samarita, Samaria. They don't have truth over there. Well, that's well, they, but they don't have this bad spirit y'all have over here. So Jesus leaves. Why? The Pharisees, remember in the scripture, the Pharisees are always presented as Jesus' theological opposite, his ideological opposite. It's not that he says they're wrong as far as their truth or their inheritance of Mosaic law, the law of Moses. It's they're wrong in how they're pursuing God. They're wrong in what is important. And so this is this contrast. Notice this. This is the setting. They've turned the work of God into a competition between Jesus and John the Baptist. Jesus says, not leaving. He goes through Samaria. It's on this way through Samaria that he stops at Jacob's well at three o'clock in the afternoon, the hottest part of the day. He's very tired. He was already exhausted from ministry and now journeying, he's tired. The disciples leave him there to go into town uh, and pursue some needed uh, supply or purchase some needed supplies and a woman comes, a Samaritan woman. Jesus asked for a drink of water. She's stunned. She's shocked. He's just broke two social um, conventions. First of all, in this world, Jews don't speak to Samaritans. They are at odds with one another. They have theological, truth-founded differences. They both claim Abraham. They both claim the inheritance of divine covenant, but they have different ways of going about worship. One says here. The other says there. Details not important for this, but you need to see this. Jesus speaks to her and asks her for water. She says, how is it that you, here's the first convention, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, and then she says the second convention, woman, because in this world, for a man to speak with a woman was to have a sketchy, as it were, morality. People would look at you in the manner of a uh, dangerous transgressor to speak to a woman. Jews have no dealings with with Samaritans, yes, and men don't speak to women. Jesus then says to her, uh, he begins a conversation that is not really about water. It's about, it's about worship. This is important for us to see because part of it's for her in the moment and part of it is for us as understanding. The conversation is about water, but it's not just about water. It's really a conversation about worship. Uh, she doesn't know why he would ask her. He says to her, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink. She thinks we're talking about water. You have nothing to draw with. The water is, the well is deep. Um, she, and as far as this living water, you're talking about, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? Drank from it himself as well as his sons and livestock. She is claiming a, the same religious inheritance. Think proper worship. That's what she's talking about. She's claiming this inheritance of proper worship. Jesus is talking about proper worship too. It's just not the same proper worship. That's what is happening here. That's why the story is in the word of the Lord. So here, uh, having moved past the issue of uh, nothing to draw with, um, she stands upon the inheritance of Jacob. Jesus points out the limited of ability of natural water 
to solve spiritual desire. She says, he says, if you drink of this water, you'll thirst again. But if you would drink of the water I would give you, you would never thirst. In fact, uh, you would be more than someone who was satisfied. You would be someone who could satisfy others. You would not just be someone begging water. You would be a fountain of water. We're still talking about worship. We're talking about proper worship. All right, so here we go. Give me this water, she says, that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And so he says, go call your husband and come here. Here is the moment where we move from a religious conversation of proper worship, whether or not you should be talking to me, uh, what the father said should be the form of worship, the inheritances we all argue and disagree about. We move into the nitty gritty of life. When we are introduced to the spiritual, the spiritual will not stay at a categorical distance from you. Let me explain what I mean by that because it's a complicated way that I said it. Uh, This is what I'm trying to say. So many of us try to categorize our life. We have the spiritual part of us. Let's call that Sunday you. And then we have Monday through Saturday. Let's not call that Sunday you because that's the rest of the week you, all right? And on Sunday, we know what we're going to do. We worship on Sunday. Sunday is for worship. That's a good thing. It's a great tradition. We embrace it. We celebrate it. We worship on Sunday. But you cannot categorize the presence of God in your life where you pencil him in for a day because you, watch this, you do not stop being a worshiper on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. You may worship different things, but you didn't stop being a worshiper. You might worship your favorite ball team. You might worship your favorite movie star. You might worship your career, worship your bank account, worship your hobby, worship your family. You, might, you did not stop being a worshiper just because you left the church on Sunday. You're a worshiper. It's just you might be choosing something else to worship. And this is the challenge of spiritual life. You don't get to have a category for God and say on Sunday I'm a worshiper the rest of the week is about me this is to fundamentally miss what we were created to be we were created to be in spiritual fellowship with God there was it was as though God made us in a in 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 a I want to speak carefully but there's something here I I it was a It was an act of God's love and generosity that he gave us of his eternal spirit and breathed the breath of life into us. And he did not do it simply because he was in some way trying something new. He did it as an act of spiritual completion. How do we know that? The image given to us in scripture of God and his spiritual bride, of the spiritual bridegroom and the spiritual bride is that of covenant marriage. That's the image given. And this is the idea of marriage. I am made whole by you. I am completed by you. I don't know if the future will be easy or hard, but it'll be better with you there whether or not it's easy or hard. And me, incomplete, are made whole by you. This is the spiritual love story shown to us. And you cannot talk about worship. I know I'm swimming in some deep water here. You just have to forgive me. Sometimes I have a mood. Uh, so uh, you, cannot, you cannot be, as it were, um, uh, you cannot talk about worship without understanding it is a celebration of the eternal love story that was God's try for a greater, as it were, uh, at one moment, a greater completion. Let me say it this way. God is not stuck with you. He sought you. God seeks. He is a seeker. All right. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst away. Give me this water. Go get your husband. She has to decide whether or not she's ready for God to get into the 
Monday through Saturday of her life? Or can we just sit here at Jacob's well and talk theology? Uh, She can lie, and the story probably would have never made it into the book. She can deflect. People deflect God every day. She can do, or she can be authentic. At this moment, you will see her be authentic. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. This is confession. This is the power of spiritual confession. It's the moment you stop being a consumer of your own lies. Right there. That's confession. No longer consuming my own lies. She could spin it. I've had a long run of bad luck where flawed people have hurt me. It's not me that's the problem. It's flawed people. You're on number six and he's not buying All right, moving along. Um, She chooses confession. I have no husband. Jesus says, you have well said. You have well said. You have well said. He already knew. That's That's not the issue. The problem wasn't his knowledge. It was her confession. The problem isn't God's power in your life. It's whether or not you're ready. And as long as we consume our own deceptions and we consume our own lies, we aren't ready. But a moment comes when God sets us up to see whether or not we are ready for confession. And at that moment, she says, I have no husband. And he says, you have well said. And then he reveals what he always knew about her, why he had an appointment with her, why he stopped at a well, why God cares about a single person. Yes, God cares about the single person person and he said you've had five the one you're with is not your husband Uh, in that you spoke truly she says I perceive that thou art a prophet she's ready to get spiritual now Mm, somebody have a little talk with Jesus gonna tell him all about my mm, I was a prophet we're gonna have service then we'll go eat Okay, so um, thou art a prophet. What do you do with prophets? You have spiritual conversations. You go to form and ritual. You go to order and inheritance. That's what you do. This isn't about worship. Now it's about theology. No, it's still about worship. She's going to change the subject once she perceives that he is a man of God. I see that you're a man of God. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. It's not about the argument. It's not about the debate. We're talking about worship. What she has done is set forward the single issue. The Samaritans and the Jews don't argue over covenant. They all want the covenant. They don't argue over Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They all want the inheritance of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They argue about how do we go about following the inheritance that is given to us. You would think that Jesus would go into a discussion of who got it right and who got it wrong. Let me remind you, every time you read in the scripture and there's a debate going around Jesus, Jesus knows who got it right and who got it wrong. He knows what the Pharisees were right about. They were right about marriage. And they were right about eternal life. He knows what the uh, Sadducees were uh, uh, right about and wrong about. Uh, They were right about the Mishnah not being the same as the Torah. They were wrong about eternal life. He knows what the Essenes were right about and what the Essenes were wrong about. He knows. How many times does Jesus get into a debate to straighten everybody out? Not once. He answers the questions of hurting people who are ready to receive. He does not apply to the local theological seminary and have debate for the purpose of debate. Jesus is about the broken heart. Jesus is about the sinner. Jesus is about the hurting person. So anybody who is trying to help the hurting, who is trying to help the lonely, they are representing the heart of God. They may be wrong about many things, but they are getting the heart of God right. All right. I'm getting off the reservation. Let me get back on track here. Woman, believe me. This is how Jesus answers theological debate. An hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. I know y'all been fighting about this for years, but let me tell you, a day's coming when it won't matter. Neither of you are right. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But it's not that truth doesn't matter. Jesus settles salvation of the Jews. But 
We're talking about worship. For the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers, somebody say true worshipers, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. The Father is seeking such to worship him. The Father is seeking. God's looking for you. God's looking for worshipers. What are we talking about when we talk about this? What are we trying to address? That is what I am wanting to get to here. This issue of seeking God from a zealous heart and a passionate desire, seeking to know him, to have a personal uh, relationship in your life. We can seek to know the ways of the Lord. In fact, there is a uh, message I've preached before from the Old Testament where there was a, uh, many people understood the law of the Lord, but uh, Moses understood the ways of the Lord. And um, so it was that you see this, this differentiation as it were. And to know God, you can seek to know the ways of the Lord, not just form, function, formula, and law. All of that has its place. But this is something that is more. This is a divine love story. When you say, when you want to show God you love him, you do it through worship. Worship is, uh, shall we say, uh, how we, the creation, tell the creator that we love him. Worship is a story of love. Our love for God is not romantic love. And we understand that. And if Uh, There's been a couple times I've heard preachers get a little carried away using romantic love as an example, and um, it is an example, uh, and we do learn from it, um, hence the Song of Solomon. Um, But I, 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 I oftentimes have been in services where someone would take it a little bit too far, and you can almost feel people in the audience get a little bit like, "Uh, I don't know what that means. (laughs) I don't know where we're going. Okay, so it's not romantic love, but it is a love story. So in 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 Rome. Um, you're seeking an, uh, an ideal uh, that is on one level your biological ideal. Let's just be real here for a moment. You seek your biological ideal. There's a reason why men, you married men, when you met your wife, you were like, hey, hey. You didn't even know her yet, but you were like, hey, call me. <laughs> you get, see what I'm saying? You never talked to her. What was the attraction? Yes, there's this physiological foundation of an ideal. She fits your type. She fits your ideal. And so you'd never talk to her. You didn't know how much money she had in the bank. You didn't know if she could cook. But you walked by and you were like, hey, hey. Yes, you hear the bishop say amen. When the bishop says amen, it's settled. Okay, but that wasn't enough, was it? Because you've probably met attractive people of the opposite sex who after three sentences you were like nope not for me (laughs) I was all in until he opened that mouth (laughs) can I get a witness yes that's what I'm talking about okay so you have a biological ideal a physiological ideal that's the hey hey function Uh, or you know like when I was growing up we would always say oh now that girl needs Jesus (laughs) Anyway, moving along. Uh, we, were the, we were the suckers who needed Jesus. <laughs> that girl was just going to the market. We were like, oh, my Anyway, moving along. So um, you get the idea. You have a physiological ideal, but you also have a personality. Uh, you have a personality ideal. There's a person who fits with your personality. Um, and you are better together. You bring out the good in each other. Um, relationships are really, really difficult when you bring out the bad in one another. And you have a relationship built on competition, and you always feel like you're getting one up on one another. That's a miserable house. And you're uh, in a relationship where you are trying in some way to get a win. Um, so a quick note to all the married folks, um, or those of you engaged, whatever. Um, the, as soon as you can stop feeling like you're getting a win or scoring a point, the more healthy your relationship can become. Because if you two have become one, hurting your partner is like cutting. You cannot hurt them without hurting yourself. Or you never understood what covenant marriage was. But anyway, I'm moving along. Spiritually, he is the, there is this, attribute of of attraction 
that we we perceive, we seek to know, we seek to understand on a spiritual level. How does that happen? How do you fall in love with Jesus? For years of my life, I heard people talk about, I've fallen in love with Jesus. I was like, what does that mean? I don't know what you mean by it. I know how to clap my hands when you say it. I know how to say, you know, I know how to wave. I know how to sing along. Falling in love with Jesus. Falling in love with Jesus. And then Nathan says, sing this with me. Falling in love. I'm like, I can't do that. What's he trying to get me to sing a falsetto for? He's like, look what I can do. Ha, ah, you can't do that. You ain't got no ice cream. <laughs> anyway, moving along. I don't know where that came from, but it's on you. How do we fall in love with God? What does that mean? Okay, you need, if you can start to perceive the ways of God, you will see how his ways makes a broken world whole. And you fall in love with that. You can be aware of the deep, deep pain that's in the world, the shattering pain that people have lived through. People that, so much pain in the world, it's as though the whole creation groans and you, through prayer, through Bible study, through spiritual perception, can perceive the heart of God that breaks for a broken world. And he says, I love you so much, I will break myself to make you whole. You can fall in love with that. And you can say, that's the thing right there. That's the thing. That's the most beautiful image. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for a friend. And we weren't even God's friends. We were his rebellious kids. And he loved us. And there's so much pain. When you see the pain in the world, it should show you how God broke himself to take this pain and to save the lonely and to heal the sick. And you fall in love with that. It's not physiological. It's an idea of the heart of God and you begin to see the ways of God and you begin to know the word of God and you begin to see the mission of God and you fall in love with that and no matter how dark the night you're in love with the idea of the most powerful one who has ever been saying I love them so much I would rather die than see them lost That's the story in the garden of Adam and Eve, really. Eve was deceived, Adam wasn't. But he ate of the fruit in spite of the fact that he wasn't deceived. It is as though he was so in love with Eve, he said, I would rather die too than live without her. That's exactly what Jesus did for all of uh, his, his people. He died for his church. He said, look at their sin. They've been deceived. Look at their mistakes. Okay, I would rather die than lose them. And so at Calvary, he demonstrated the Savior heart of God. That's what you fall in love with. That's what you try to describe. That is what makes you a worshiper. You see, worship isn't simply whether or not you jump or run. All that is praise, and it's good. It's, we're for it, and we are a praising and a worshiping church. We want you to find what is authentic to you. Uh, you may be like me and be a little kind of more reserved, and that be authentic. And if you, if you really acted out, it would be a show, and you would feel like a con man when you were done. And then you might be like Pastor Anthony, and he's the first one to jump to his feet and shout and holler. If that, what is authentic to you is going to feel like worship, you need to offer that to the Lord. Can I have a big amen? You need to come into the house of God. If you're a crier, honey, bring you a box of Kleenex. If you're a jumper, then you need to put on some running shoes. If you see what I'm saying, worship is your expression. As though you look heaven, where do you say, I see you? I see you. What do we mean when we say God is holy? Now, um, this is difficult for us to understand because holiness applies. Uh, it is a word that has uh, levels to it. And, and in the Old Testament, they would make things, objects, holy, and they would dedicate them uh, like the utensils and the tent, and all of that would become holy. It wasn't used for anything else except worship to the Lord. Therefore, it became separate unto the Lord. That's where that language come from. It is separate to uh, the Lord. However, um, our uh, holiness applied to us is very much about our representation of God. And do we bring honor 
to his name or do we, we bring shame to his name in our choices? None of us are good enough to earn salvation. So holiness for us becomes an ongoing testimony of our choices to give glory to God. But God doesn't need to be separated from everything else. God doesn't need to make sure that he acts appropriately, walks around and speaks the right way like we do. And yet he is the source of holiness. So what are we talking about when we say God is holy? It has nothing to do with whether or not he got sloppy drunk over the weekend. He did not get sloppy drunk. Do you understand what I'm saying? What are we referring to when we say God is holy? Well, well, here it is. This is really the most important understanding that I, honestly, that I, I, I didn't, it took me uh, many, many moons uh, to try to understand this because the language just runs together. And, and it's basically this. When you say God is holy, you're saying God is like, uh, unlike anything else that is or could ever be. God is other. He is divine spiritual other. He's not like us. He has no limitations like us. He is other. Why is this important? And why is the most important language for you to understand divine holiness, the language of the Old Testament that speaks things like this? I looked around me and there were no one else. You see, if you want to think in terms of good and evil, and then you group, you group the evil deities together and call them evil, and then you group the holy, the good deities together and you call them good, this is not holiness. Holiness is not us judging deities and saying we have good deities and you have bad deities, and we're going to put God over with the good deities and we're going to make them holy. No. There are no deities to compare to him. He stands in the solitude of himself. That's why this Old Testament language is so important and so often nailed down over and over and over that he alone is glorious and he alone is powerful and there is none to the right of him and there is none to the left of him. This is truth monotheism. You see, true monotheism isn't counting how many. It's about seeing only one. All right, I am, I am, I'm, I'm, I need to try to wrap this up. Um, this is what I want you, I, I want to share this because my, 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 I, what I'm talking today about is uh, of worship and spiritual desire. And so he is a other, he is alone. There is none like unto him. And so uh, we worship him and we, we serve him. And in the same manner that we see in him the highest good, and we see in him the Savior heart, and we see in him the foundation and source of ethics and every good thing that we could imagine. We see in him every beautiful thing. He is the highest star in our sky. And once you allow him to stand as the highest star in your sky, now you're able to perceive what we mean when we say, I've fallen in love with Jesus. I've fallen in love with the promise, the hope, the joy. So now, very quickly, uh, let me tell you the second story. Uh, and it goes like this. It is of David bringing the ark back to uh, Jerusalem. The ark of the Lord had been lost because of the folly of the preceding king and saw in fear and arrogance had misused the ark. Um, it was not supposed to lead in battle. Um, it was only used when it was appropriate to worship the Lord. And so you will find times where it is on a scene, as it were, uh, in a story, but it's an object of worship. It is not a tool of war. Um, and so they try to turn it into a tool of war, and they lose the ark. And uh, when it's brought back, I won't tell the whole story, um, they, they go to get it, and they do wrong. They do not honor the Lord uh, they treat him conveniently. C.S. Lewis talks about this uh, in his writings where he talks about God is good, but he's not tame. <laughs> the idea that um, lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, um, he's good, but he's not t tame. What he's really saying is never forget that you serve God. God doesn't serve you. That's really what he's saying there. We don't, we don't make God convenient. And the picture of an ark bearing God's presence is a picture of human convenience under a title of divine authority. We don't make God convenient. And 
The result is not that we complicate for the sake of complication, but that in our heart we bow before God rather than just carrying him like a rabbit's foot in our life. You see? And so, so the whole cart, they making God convenient. And, and, and the Lord could have judged earlier. He could have smitten them with a sickness like happened in other times when that, in that Old Testament where judgment was lived so close to people. Um, but it's like he put up with it, he put up with it, he put up with it. And when Uzzah touches the ark, it was too, it was too much. And judgment strikes Uzzah, and Uzzah dies right there. And the Bible says this, on that day that David feared the Lord. He was afraid of God, not reverence fear, but terror fear. God is good, but God's not tame. And you serve him. He doesn't serve you. And so here you see David stop, and they take the ark to the house of Obed-Edom. Now, Edom, the Edom part of his name is a reference to his lineage. Obed was his name. Edom is his lineage. He was an Edomite. He was not even of the house of Israel. And they take that manifestation, this gift of covenant. You see, the Ark of the Covenant was God's gift to them. It was a form whereby they could have manifest presence of God with them. It was a gift to them that the presence of the Lord might dwell with them in the same manner that the Holy Spirit is a gift to us, that the Spirit of the Lord might dwell with us. And so as they were protected by a veil from the glory of God which could consume, we are protected by a veil The difference is their veil was one of a temple built around a holy of holies. Our veil is the perfection in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our veil, our covering. And so here you have uh, this this fear. Uh, We've done wrong. The the ark goes to the house of Obed-Edom, and God blesses them with favor. God blesses them with honor. Everything they touch is blessed and exalted. Um, David hears about it, the Bible says, and David's not too happy about that. Why? He craves God's presence with him. He craves God's anointing with him. And Obed-Edom, actually, awesome story here. Obed-Edom, actually, after having the the ark of the Lord in his house, when they bring it to Jerusalem, he will move to Jerusalem to be close to it. And then he will ask for opportunities to serve in the temple I don't have time to preach this. Preach it another time. He stays close to the ark because once you discover the favor of God in your life, nothing else satisfies. Almost done. Musicians come. I know I'm going long, but I'm in the mood, so forgive me. Um, so here, here, you, here you see this, this reality of, of David craving the presence of God. So he does his homework this time. He understands that he, it, it's, a, it's a slap in God's face to try to make him convenient. That ought to be a lesson to all of us. And he does it right. They bring the ark. And as David is coming, he's, he's met the judgment of God. He's overwhelmed with a thanksgiving. And he, he's arranged for worship. He's arranged for sacrifice. He's done everything. But as he's watching, he's not content to simply stand as one who is gifted by God, one who is anointed by God. He's not content to simply receive God's Uh, kingship upon him. Uh, He is jealous of the priests who have the role of leading the ark and praising God. There are people who have this job. It's just not David. And it's killing David because although God's made him a king, he wants to be a worshiper. And so somehow it happens. He calls one of those priests over and he says, all right, I need to borrow your ephod. And what he does is he takes off his king's robes and he puts a linen ephod on, which is how the priests went before the ark. That was their job. And they praised and worshiped the Lord. And so they did it in their style and their way. And David took it to the next level. He traded his kingly robes for this linen ephod and he slips down there and he's like watching how they go to the left, to the left, all right, to the right, to the right, turn it all around say hallelujah i can do that to the left to the right to that turn it all around hallelujah and he starts true story breaking it down he when they blow the ram's horn he shouts with the voice of triumph and when they do you ought to see how some of those hebrews dance it's a real dance it's not like ours you know we do kind of the frustrated dance (laughs) 
they do kind of choreographed dances. Seriously, I'm not making this up. Get you some history. They do, and he's like right there, hmm, over here, over here. I'm a worshiper. His wife, daughter of uh, Saul, is really troubled by this, not because she's a bad person. She might be a bad person. That's a different issue. I don't know. We'll leave that with the Lord. But that's not why she's troubled. She's troubled because David has broken order. He is the king. That's his job. Stick to your knitting. He's not a priest who wears an uh, uh, ephod who dances before the Lord. He has unkinged himself. <laughs> he, has, he, has, he has in some way traded the order God has given him to be a lesser. But that's not how it feels to David. It doesn't feel like a lesser to be a worshiper. It feels like why he was made. Yeah. Because his whole life, he's been a worshiper. When he was a boy with a harp, he was worshiping. When it was raining, he was a worshiper. And when the sun was shining, he was a worshiper. When there was a lion and a bear, he worshiped on top of dead lions and dead bears. When there was a Goliath to be fought, he worshiped his way to the brook and got five smooth stones out of the brook. This feels like why he exists. This so touches the heart of the Lord that the order of right approach to God will be changed by the, the worshiping heart of David. And God will say, that's the way right there. David, you touched me. I'm going to restore the tabernacle of David. And so David's life literally becomes the way of worship, which is why nowadays uh, churches like us have the kind of worship style that we do because this was, this was shown to us in the life of David. And this insight will lead him, in spite of his perfections, and he's far from perfect, in spite of, in spite of his sins, David is a sinner, uh, in spite of all these things, it will lead him to insight, understanding, and glory that can hardly be comprehended. What do I mean by that? If you look at the Psalms, wrapped in worship is everything. Watch this. In the Psalms, I don't have time to do this. Maybe I'll do a series sometimes. There is doctrine in the Psalms. There is the doctrine of Christology. The doctrine of Christ is in the Psalms. There is prophecy in the Psalms. There is uh, law celebrated in the Psalms. Do you see? Everything is in the Psalms as if to say when you get worship right, you get everything else in a package deal. There's over a hundred prophecies about Christ in the Psalms, more than any other Old Testament prophet. Wait a minute, David wasn't a prophet, or was he? We don't know, but he was a worshiper. And in his worship came the greatest insight to who Jesus was and the ministry of Jesus of any Old Testament writer. You see, Michael doesn't understand why he would do that. Because to her... Serving God is about place and order. You got out of your place, David. And it's embarrassment when you got out of your place. It's not that she says, I want you to serve the heathen. That's not what she's asking for. She wants a religion of order and duty. You wear your king's robes, David. Let the priests wear their priestly robes. But there's something in the heart of David that is, no, I'm a worshiper. I am filled with spiritual passion and desire and I want to know him and I'm not satisfied with form and function I'm not satisfied to do my part show up on Sunday keep my seat warm I'm a worshiper I'm not content to keep Jesus kind of shoehorned on Sunday what about Monday through Saturday I'm a worshiper I am pursuing God I am seeking to know him and so when David worships the Lord and pours out of his spirit, he doesn't have precedent. He doesn't have instruction. He doesn't have anyone saying, you ought to get out of that seat and praise the Lord. That's not why he does it. David isn't manipulated into it. David isn't tricked into it. David is irrepressibly a worshiper. David just worships. He, when things are good, he worships. When things are bad, he's worshiped. And God is seeking people who will worship him. All right, now let me bring these together. So at the well, Jesus says to the woman, 
I know you think we should do it that way and they think we should do it this way, but a day is coming when true worshipers are going to do it a different way. They're going to take their enthusiasm, their passion. This is not a capital S spirit referring to the Holy Spirit. This is a small s spirit referring to their individual passion and enthusiasm. They're going to take their passion and their enthusiasm and they're going to wrap their arms around truth. And then where they came from won't matter and where they worship won't matter because it's not just them looking for God, it's God looking for them. God is seeking such to worship Him. Church, your life cannot be content to simply have this structure of religion, this duty of church. It cannot be structured where you, you know, we do this and we do that. We don't do this. We don't do that. No, that's, that's, it's all helpful. It's all has its place, but that's not the foundations of how this covenant of grace was established. Jesus, that son of David, came and became our veil that we might live as worshipers and be both what? Kings and what? Priests. You have place, you have order, you have duty, but you are a worshiper. And you have to make the pursuit of God the most important thing in your life. Would you stand with me all across the house? I'm going to pray over you right now and then we're going to see if the Spirit wants to move individually in your life. If you're ready for the touch of the Spirit. But let's, let's pray right now. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your presence that I feel here in this service. I thank you for your anointing that is real, very much perceptible in our hearts and lives. I pray for every individual here in this house. I pray for everyone watching this online. Lord Jesus, help us to have our eyes open and to pursue you in relationship and passion in zeal and spiritual hunger. Not just order. Order's fine. It has its place. Not just law, not just duty, not just inheritance. All those things are fine, but that is not the story of love, spiritual love. The love story of humanity and God is found in a spiritual act of worship where we open ourselves completely to you and you respond by veiling us with your goodness and filling us with your presence. Let that be the story of First Church, O God. Let that be the story of every individual seeking to know you and serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. This is what we're going to do. In just a moment, we're going to have a baptismal service. Our worship team is going to lead us in worship and prayer here for a few moments. If you need to go, you can go. We're honored to have you with us. We love you. Have a great week. If you'd like to linger for a little while, you can pray right where you are. You can step out and come down to the front. We'll have some of our pastoral staff down here. Uh, let's just let the Spirit move in this house right now. God bless you. We love you. Have a great week in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.